Good morning. When I was younger, we used to go on a holiday uh, to France most years, and uh, every time we did, we'd end up visiting vineyards, not just because they're pretty, but also so that my parents could buy wine straight from the growers. Uh, It's a tradition I'm more than happy to continue in my own family. But uh, other than being cheaper, the other advantage of going to the vineyard is that you get to taste the wine before you buy it. And you can taste the different vintages and, and smell them and get the aromas. And, and your sense of smell is such a powerful sense that you can pick up distinct and amazing flavors from different glasses of wine. And having grown up with it, I too love wine and love experiencing and tasting new wines. But I don't know if you've ever read the back of bottles of wine. There's a plethora of words that are used to describe the different flavors and aromas that people can detect. On this chart, you can see a list of wine descriptions and and what they mean. It's got some rather random ones that I thought I'd highlight. Um, Astringent, a wine with aggressive acidity and tannin. Sounds a bit scary. Or flamboyant, a wine that has very showy fruit flavors. Or my personal favourite, barnyard, a wine that smells like farmyard animals. (laughs) I'm not sure I'd recommend one with that description. But not all wine descriptions are as sincere as that chart suggests. Recently, someone took the trouble of replacing some wine labels in Tesco's with some slightly more imaginative descriptions. I've got one here. Suave. Agile clam flavours with a suspicion of red kryptonite. Great with roadkill or clam chowder. Or how about some Shiraz? Tastes of bitter clown tears with a hint of suspicion. Great with lobster thermidor. Best drunk on the street. Or my personal favourite, blue nun. Made by actual blue nuns. In sea caves protected by wild otters full-bodied with a hint of wet sand. But today, as we continue our series on 2 Corinthians, we're not looking and tasting wine, I'm sorry to say, but we're looking at the aroma of Christ and what it is to smell like Jesus to God, to others, and to ourselves. And so we're going to read 2 Corinthians, starting at chapter 2, verse 12. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door to me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. I'm going to pause there because I could preach the whole of this 30 minutes on this one little passage. There is so much in there. But I'm not going to. I'm going to continue with the rest of it later. But Paul has traveled 150 miles up from Ephesus to meet Titus in Troas, as agreed. When he gets there, though, Titus, who's been in Corinth delivering one of Paul's previous letters, he's not there. And Paul says that he has no peace of mind because he can't find him. Now, that's probably a bit of an understatement. I've tried to imagine what this is like. 
Living in the first century, you don't have mobile phones, email, GPS, or any of the technology we have these days. It freaks me out, if I'm honest. Paul and Titus would have had to agree on a meeting place and time. But they didn't have diaries. They didn't have clocks. They didn't even have watches. So I imagine they'd have had to meet and agree on a specific place and time. Maybe Paul said to Titus, well, let's meet in the marketplace in Troas at noon on the first day after the fifth Sabbath, or something like that. And it says that Paul was preaching there, so presumably he was planning on being there for a few days. But Titus doesn't show. He can't get his phone out of his pocket and phone him and say, where are you? He has to change his plans. And sometimes things happen outside of our control and we need to adjust our plans. And so that's exactly what Paul did. So he stopped his preaching and made the decision to carry on to Macedonia and probably went to Philippi, which is at the top. I wonder if they'd agree this is a backup plan. Well, look, if, we, if you can't make it to Troas, then I'll meet you two weeks later in Philippi. Either way, it was another 150 miles up the coast. And Paul said he left because he had no peace of mind. And he would have had this from the moment he arrived in Troas and did all the preaching that he was doing and would have lasted throughout his time and journey up the coast. And sometimes we feel restless and impatient whilst we're waiting for news. And that's the first of my four points today. God comforts the downcast. Because we don't immediately find out about Titus. There's a bit of a cliffhanger as Paul changes the subject for the next five chapters And it's not until chapter 7 that Paul writes that God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. For me, uh, in June, I'm I'm due to start a new job. And this is a job that I first found out about in July last year. And I was initially offered the job in December. But getting all the paperwork done and HR meetings has all taken a lot longer than it could have done. And I must admit, I'm not a patient man, and I've struggled, and I've been downcast at times, thinking it's not going to happen. But talking to God by praying through on my own, with my wife, with my friends and community group, has helped enormously. And maybe there are some people here who have issues that are going on in, in your lives. Maybe it's health, maybe it's to do with a job, maybe it's financial or something else that's weighing down on you. But give your cares over to God and you will find some peace. Like we've spoken about during the worship, if you feel that something in your life is shattered and you want God to make it into a new pane of glass, then ask God. Because the same God who comforted Paul when he was downcast wants to comfort us and bring us peace. And Paul wrote about that to the Philippians. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation... By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So if you're struggling for peace, give your cares to God, who comforts the downcast. And whilst they're in Macedonia, Paul writes this letter, which Titus then takes back to Corinth. And it continues in verse 14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, 
and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak with God with sincerity like men sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Smells are powerful stuff. They can penetrate the recesses of our memories and imagination in ways that our other senses just can't touch. A specific smell can take us back to a moment of time in an instant. A certain combination of spices, of cinnamon, of garlic, of herbs, and roasted chicken can conjure up the memory of some delicious jerk chicken that we've tasted before. The smell of freshly baked croissant can instantly relocate you to a boulangerie in Paris. Or the scent of a perfume can remind you of a loved one from years gone by. And in this passage, Paul refers to the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ that is evident as God leads his people in triumphal procession. Now, the image of processions is, is not something we're perhaps that familiar with these days, but it would have been very natural to the Corinthians. When a leader had won a notable military victory, the whole city would come and watch the troops march in jubilation. I don't know if you've seen the film Gladiator, but there's, there's a whole stream of people going through Rome after the victory there. Now, we don't have that, but we do have imperial state occasions, like the state opening of parliament or funerals of state or the royal wedding a few years ago. But for me, even more memorable than that was in 2012 when we had the pomp and circumstance of the Queen's Jubilee followed quickly by the Olympic parade. Now, I'd been fortunate enough to be volunteering during the Olympics and had the opportunity to watch that parade near to Buckingham Palace. I was able to watch the Olympians streaming past, and Chris Hoy was showing off his medals, and Mo was doing the Mobot. I'm not going to do it. Jess was grinning from ear to ear, and Rebecca was waving fervently. And there were red arrows and hurricanes and other planes flying overhead as the celebrations reached their climax. But during the Roman military marches, there would have been even more things to see and more things to smell. Whilst they too would show off their gold, the spoils of war looted during the victories, they'd also show off their prisoners to the crowds. And they'd burn incense throughout the parade as well. And that smell would indicate victory to those who'd won, to the generals, to the allies, to the crowd. 
But to the prisoners, it warned them of their impending fate. For some, that might have been life in slavery. For others, death, maybe in the amphitheater fighting gladiators. Either way, it was a smell of doom and despair to some. I don't know if some of you have hay fever or allergies, but I do. And whilst for some people the scent of flowers and a beautiful bouquet is, a, is as attractive as the sight of them, some flowers will just set me off sneezing. Likewise with perfumes, there are certain shops, I don't know about you, but I just can't go in them. Have you ever been into Lush? I'm in there for less than a minute and I'm sneezing left, right and centre on the soaps. It's not much better walking through the fragrance section of a department store. And those fragrances to some are sweet smelling, but to others, not so much. And there's a story of a boy called Teddy Stallard and his teacher, Miss Thompson. I think some of you here are teachers and you probably had a child like Teddy in your class. Kind of child who strains the mercy of any teacher. Messy, unpleasant, indifferent, and generally unlikable. And Miss Thompson gradually enjoyed marking his homework badly. And eventually, she checked his school records. And she discovered that previously, he'd been a really promising student. And he'd done really well. Until his mother had died a couple of years ago from a terminal illness. And his father subsequently showed little interest. And at Christmas time, the boys and girls bought presents to Miss Thompson and piled them on her desk. And Teddy brought one wrapped in simple brown paper. And as the children watched her open them, as she opened Teddy's, the, a gaudy rhinestone bracelet fell out with half the stones missing and a half-empty bottle of cheap perfume. As the children began to giggle and smirk, Miss Thompson silenced them by putting the bracelet on her wrist and putting a bit of perfume on as well and said, doesn't it smell lovely? The other children went, yes, yeah, it's lovely. And when school was over, Teddy lingered behind and came over to her desk. And he said softly, Miss Thompson, you smell just like my mummy. And her bracelet looks really pretty on you too. I'm glad you like my presents. From that day on, Miss Thompson treated Teddy differently. And she began to invest more time and effort in him. And by the end of that year, Teddy showed dramatic improvement and was ahead of some of his classmates. And over the years, Teddy would write letters to Miss Thompson. One letter arrived when Teddy graduated from high school, top of his class. Another came when he graduated with honours from college. And a further letter came as this. Dear Miss Thompson, as of today, I am Dr. Theodore Stallard. How about that? I wanted you to be the first to know. I'm getting married next month, the 27th to be exact. I'd like you to come and sit where my mother would have sat if she were alive. You're the only family I have now. Dad died last year. Love, Teddy. Miss Thompson went to that wedding and sat where Teddy's mother would have sat, wearing the fragrance that had played a part in changing both of their lives. And my second point today is that we all have a part to play in life's procession. 
We are to be the fragrance of life to our family and to our friends and to our colleagues as we share the gospel. Phil Moore in his book about Paul's letters to the Corinthians wrote, Evangelism is not just the calling of a highly skilled few, but of every believer who has received the Holy Spirit and been made part of Jesus' body. In the city of London where I work, there's a public space called Bunhill Fields, and this picture is just a fraction of it. It was used as a burial ground in the 17th to 19th centuries, and over 123,000 people were buried there. Among them include Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley, the poet William Blake, the author Daniel Defoe, as well as John Bunyan, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, who died in 1688. And today John Bunyan is known primarily as an author, but in the 17th century he was one of the most influential preachers in the country. And he wrote an autobiography, And he recorded that before his conversion, he had been a brisk talker in the matters of religion. And I heard, but I understood not. And he came to Christ by overhearing three or four poor, working-class women who were talking as they sat together on a doorstep in Bedford. He continued, Methought they spake as if joy did make them speak. They spake with such pleasantness of scripture language and with such appearance of grace in all they said, that they were to me as if they had found a new world. They were living their lives exuding the fragrance of Jesus. Now, were these women saints who were sinless and led perfect lives? Of course they weren't. But they had Jesus in their hearts, and not just in their heads like Bunyan had. I don't know about you, but at times I can feel overwhelmed with the call of evangelism. I don't feel like an evangelist at all. And Paul acknowledges this when he wrote, who is equal to such a task? And the simple answer is that none of us are. Of course we're not. We're sinful human beings who mess up every day of our lives. But with God, we are equal to this task. In fact, with the great commission that Jesus gave us to make disciples of all nations, we are required to do this. And I tend to get frustrated with myself in in my office, maybe, at work, when I let a situation get the better of me. In that moment, it feels as though I've blown the chance for my colleagues to possibly know Jesus through me. But I'm human, and tomorrow is another day and another chance to let the aroma of Christ emanate from me. For some of us, it doesn't have to be a direct conversation. It could just be a chat with another person, just like it was for John Bunyan. I love the way the Christian author Adrian Plass puts it, when he aims to share the gospel by entertaining at the front door while the truth slips in through the side window. We all have an important part to play in sharing the gospel. Because God has made us all differently. Some people are called to be more outspoken and more direct, And that's to be both admired and encouraged. As Paul writes in Ephesians 4, Christ gave gifts to people. He made some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to go and tell the good news, and some to have the work of caring for and teaching God's people. Now, this doesn't mean that evangelists shouldn't be pastoral. 
or that people who are caring can't share the good news. But it highlights that we all have different gifts, which we apply differently depending on the circumstances. And whatever our gifts are, when other people look at us, do we just look and feel like everyone else? Or do people see that there's something different about us? Do people see that there's a joy in our hearts that they desire? Do people see Jesus working in our lives? Do people see the fruits of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and humility? Are we being salt and light to those around us? Salt, which is a flavor enhancer and can turn a good meal into a great one and enriches the aroma. And that's my third point today. Do we have a rich aroma like Jesus? Or does our aroma need enhancing? And Paul warns us that not everyone is going to be receptive to the aroma of Jesus. Whilst as Christians, we have been promised eternal life, and so Jesus is indeed good news. To others, Paul writes, it is the smell of death. Like the prisoners in the procession. When non-believers hear the gospel and don't respond, it is as though, as Tom Wright puts it, they are signing their own death warrant. But don't be discouraged when people ignore you. Jesus told the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. When the farmer planted seed and as he scattered the seed, some of it fell on the road and the birds ate it. Some fell in the gravel and it sprouted quickly, but it didn't put down roots. So when the sun came up, it withered just as quickly. And some fell in the weeds, and as it came up, it was strangled by the weeds. But some fell on good earth and produced a harvest beyond his wildest dreams. And you could be having a conversation with your work colleague or a chat with a stranger on a train. And sometimes you'll know the outcome. Most of the time you won't. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't sow the seed in the first place. So I want to challenge every single person in this room this week. What one thing could you change to improve your aroma? Maybe you need to pray more. Maybe read the Bible a bit more, have an extra quiet time. Just take a moment before going into a meeting. I don't know. It doesn't have to be a big change. because It only takes a little bit of salt to change the taste and flavor of something. The Corinthians have also been questioning Paul's authority and motives. Questioning preachers and false teachers is a common theme of the book. Mick mentioned it on the first week. The letters of recommendation. And it crops up again here with Paul answering their apparent complaint about him not providing them with a reference. And he responds to them by saying, you are my reference. The fact that there is a church in Corinth at all is testament to Paul's ministry. Many of you will know that Steve has written a book called Good to Grow, in which he writes about how leadership strategies and decisions made in this church ensure that congregations and ministries grow in a healthy and sustainable way. And obviously, in the writing of that book, he leans heavily on his experience here at King's. And he was able to write it because of his work and ministry here. 
And if one of us were to challenge Steve about his book and why he was equipped to write it, he'd just turn around and say the same thing to us as Paul said to the Corinthians. You are why I can write this book. Because the church has been blessed by God and seen huge growth. I don't think any of us are going to do that. But yet the Corinthians do that to Paul. The people from the church that Paul started, prayed for, has sent letters to, has sent preachers to, has sent Titus to, and now questioning his authority and motives. Last week in this country, we commemorated the 70th anniversary of VE Day. And during his Victory Day speech, Winston Churchill spoke of the victory of the great British nation as a whole. And it was an incredible victory. But it wasn't just the Brits that were involved in it. People from all around the world, and notably the inclusion of the United States. And their president, Franklin D. Roosevelt, had died less than a month before the surrender. And earlier in the war, before the US had joined, Churchill realized that if the Allies were ever going to be victorious, they needed the United States to join the campaign. And they were understandably reticent to do so. So Churchill embarked on a multi-year charm offensive with the president, even though some of the US generals were questioning his motives throughout. And there's a great story of when Churchill was staying at the White House, Roosevelt came into his room to have a chat, only to find Churchill in the bath having a cigar, like he often did. The president excused himself and was about to leave, but before he could do so, a naked Winston Churchill stood up in his bath without bothering to reach for a towel and said, the prime minister has nothing to hide from the president of the United States. (laughs) That memorable act doubtless helped Roosevelt to know that Churchill's motives were virtuous. Paul's motives should also have been apparent through all he had done with the Corinthian church. And he tells them, and he tells us, that we are a letter from Christ. Your very lives are a letter that anyone can read by just looking at you. Christ himself wrote it, not with ink, but with God's living spirit, not chiseled into stone, but carved into human lives, and we publish it. Jesus has carved himself into our lives through the Holy Spirit. Not into stone tablets, but into our hearts. When reading about stone tablets, they wouldn't be thinking about election promises carved into giant monoliths, but about the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of stone that Moses brought down Mount Sinai engraved with God's law. In the Old Testament, the Jews had both the Ten Commandments to keep as well as the 613 other commandments of the Torah, or mitzvot. And Moses' law had helped form the foundation of law for centuries. But Jeremiah had prophesied of a new covenant in the Old Testament. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. God promises a new covenant and to write it in our hearts. And that brings me on to my final point, that our competence doesn't come from us being good and following the Ten Commandments. Yes, God wants us to be good, and that's a natural response to knowing him and to following Jesus. 
but our competence comes from the Lord. God dwelling within us and written on our hearts. Nothing is possible without God. Our competence comes from God, says Paul. And he gives the credit for all that he has achieved, which was quite a lot, back to God. And whatever we achieve through our own inadequacies and our own weaknesses, we achieve through God. And whereas the false teachers had been boasting of their own self-worth, Paul is clear that his abilities are God's and no one can claim adequacy without his help. And like our competence, our confidence is also to be found in him. So if you don't think you can tell others the good news, pray about it. Ask God to help you. Ask God for opportunities to turn your weaknesses into a strength. However hard we try, we won't ever be able to abide by the law. If we try and live by the letter of the law, we'll we'll only get so far. The moralistic laws help us to see our sin and show us how we can obey them, but God is the one that forgives us our sin and saves us from death, giving us eternal life. So, if you're struggling with anything at the moment, if you're a shattered pane of glass, remember that God comforts the downcast. The shepherd looks after his sheep and wants to share his peace with you today. So in a moment when the worship band come up, the prayer team are going to come to the front and there'll be an opportunity for people to come and pray with you. With anyone that's hurting, anyone that's going through a tough time, anyone that feels like that shattered pane of glass. And as we leave here today and start a new week, remember that all of us have a part to play in sharing the gospel. We can only do so much to our own inadequacies, but God, who is written in our hearts, gives us the competence and the power through our own weaknesses. Maybe today, some of you are feeling a bit like John Bunyan, where you, you know about God here, but you don't know God here. And if that's you, why don't you also come to the front? So what is your bouquet like at the moment? Is your aroma like Jesus? Or does it have a hint of wet sand? What one thing are you going to change this week to make your fragrance smell more like Jesus? Amen.